Oh, yes. Sorry. My bad. I got it. All right. Thank you. Well, good morning, Calvary. And good morning to you that are here in the auditorium, and I know there's many of you watching online and uh, from different places uh, in this building, overflow rooms, so uh, welcome to you as well. And uh, it's so good for us to finally be here. Uh, Linda and I come from uh, the Los Angeles area of California, and so we're so glad to be out here with you in New Jersey this week. And, uh, you know, the search process uh, has been quite an interesting process. It's gone uh, much faster than most search processes do. Um, but the Lord, I think, has just really been uh, faithfully guiding all of us throughout the process and enjoyed uh, getting to know every member of the search team, enjoyed uh, getting to know the elder board as uh, we had some further conversations. And it's, it's great to finally uh, meet all of you. And I uh, hope that we'll get an opportunity to, to talk more in depth throughout this week at all the different meetings and, uh, and opportunities that we'll have together. And so I uh, just want to give you a little bit, though, of a, of a preview of what's going to take place on, uh, on these, these special meetings Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. So I really hope that everyone can make it to that. Um, so what we want to do at that time is help you get to know us a little bit better. So um, we'll be sharing our testimonies of salvation and how the Lord um, broke into our lives and saved us through the gospel of His Son. Uh, we'll also uh, introduce you to our family. That could take a while because we have six children, um, but uh, we want you to know them as well. They're very precious to us, of course. And share a little bit more of our, of our ministry uh, story with you and how we really believe that God has just been answering prayers all along as uh, we've been um, seeking what's next uh, in ministry and serving Him, and how He's just faithfully answered those prayers with such clarity um, for us to be here with you at Calvary. And of course, we'll have plenty of opportunities to, uh, to ask questions and, uh, and uh, give you answers. So uh, well, let's, uh, let's pray together before we get into God's Word this morning. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Lord God, we praise you that you are such a faithful God to your people and that your word is truth. And so we pray according to this passage, as your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths, that you would enlighten our minds this morning from your word, that you would open our hearts and that you would guide our walk that we could walk before you in a more faithful and pleasing way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, many people around the world in the general population uh, will cry out to God in times of distress. It might be a serious illness that they're going through, a decision they need to make, financial problems, perhaps uh, issues in their family, and uh, they'll cry out to him for help even if they don't know him personally. And you know what? God is a merciful God, and so often he answers these people's prayers, and he often does even exactly as they pray. But then what kind of thanks does he so often get? How many people really do give him thanks? And for most people, I would say, or many, it's just the next time that they need help out of a troubled situation. And then, what kind of thanks is it often that he gets? It's more like a, a thank you, God, very much. Maybe he gets a, a good deed or two out of it. Maybe, maybe a check, extra check in the offering plate or something. Sometimes. Perhaps a little more. As long as the feeling is there and the memory of what he has done is there, people are willing to say, thank you, God. 
But is that all that he deserves? I mean, wouldn't the proper response include a seeking hard after this God who just answered their prayer to know him and to serve him? I mean, as the Apostle Paul writes and God speaks through him, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience? And knowing that the kindness of God is what leads you to repentance. You know, God is amazingly and constantly merciful to so many people around the world. But so often, once people get what they want from him, they discard whatever faith they even had. So one wonders, if this is the reality in our world, why is God so merciful? Why does he even bother and continue to be so merciful to so many people that are really ungrateful? Well, the answer is because he really is a very merciful God, a very merciful God who's patient and kind and forbearing. And of course, the ultimate hope-for outcome of his mercy, general mercy, is that people would see the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and put their faith in him and worship him, and they would have even more mercy, eternal salvation. And that's what this passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning is about. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. And we're going to be considering the, the, the cleansing of the ten lepers. It's a familiar story, but let me read it to you. On the way to Jerusalem, he, speaking of Jesus, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now the focus of this episode is not so much on the nine who didn't return, or even really on the miracle itself, but really on the one who returned to Jesus, praising God and bowing down before him. And what we learn from this passage is that we should be constantly giving glory to God through Jesus Christ in gratitude for our salvation as well as all the blessings that he brings into our life. And so Luke is showing us here that God still acts this way today. And so Luke tells this story, hoping to lead many mercy recipients to a true faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps there are some here today who are wrestling with this and wanting to know how to find salvation in Christ, and we will see that this morning. So you'll observe in verses 11 to 14 that God responds mercifully to so many who call out to, to him for, for grace, for mercy, and in verses 15 to 19, we see that those who respond properly through Jesus Christ receive salvation. Now, the story of the cleansing of the ten lepers is unique to Luke. In other words, you're not going to find this in any of the Gospels. It doesn't appear in Matthew or Mark or the Gospel of John. And by it, Luke is challenging everyone who reads this portion of Scripture. He's challenging unbelievers to return to God like that Samaritan and actually receive something more than just having your needs met in life, but actually receiving salvation from Jesus. 
And Luke is also challenging disciples, those of us who already follow Jesus Christ, to be more thankful, like the Samaritan in the story, who gave loud praise to the glory of God and through Jesus Christ. So let's look a little bit closer at these, these passages here today. So the first of all, in verses uh, 11 through 13, we see this urgent request for mercy. And of course, in verse 14, uh, Jesus responds and grants it. So at the beginning, you'll notice it says Jesus is still, it says he's traveling on his way to Jerusalem. Now, you might want to flip back in your Bibles a little bit to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And in Luke 9, 51, that's where Jesus started this journey to Jerusalem. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, speaking of his cross and resurrection, he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. So he's traveling on the way to Jerusalem, and this phrase gets repeated by Luke as the story continues. But you know, in reality, as you read through the Gospels, you know, Jesus has been taking his sweet time getting to Jerusalem, right? Because he's going back and forth constantly between Judea and Samaria and Galilee, all these different places. But Luke mentions this phrase on purpose for us to realize that the destiny for Jesus in Jerusalem is getting much closer. And that is to put the cross and the resurrection in our minds again as the ultimate purpose of all these stories. In fact, that's the, that's the key to interpreting all the stories in the Gospel of Luke, is to understand that they all have their fulfillment and purpose in Jesus' cross and resurrection. He's on his way to Jerusalem when this takes place. The cross, of course, would be his payment for our sin debt to God, removing our guilt and our shame, freeing us from the fear of God's judgment. And the resurrection promises us eternal life and confirms justification and brings hope for eternity to us. Now, perhaps in the story, Jesus is on his way to Perea to turn south again after crossing the Jordan on his way to Jerusalem. We don't know for sure which path he took. Luke is just interested in telling us what he's telling us, that Jesus is now somewhere between both Samaria and Galilee, and that perhaps explains why he ends up near a leper colony that's a mixed leper colony of both Jews and Samaritans. And he enters this particular village, unnamed village, we don't know what it is, and these 10 lepers, um, staying at a distance, uh, the minimum six feet. I wonder where we got that from. No, so, but these lepers knew their position in society. They sensed the judgment of God quite acutely, quite seriously in their lives. You know, lepers were considered at the time filthy, you know, cursed by God, uh, as though somehow it was their sin that brought leprosy into their situation, into their life. You know, maybe that's true for some, but, you know, we don't know those kinds of things. And especially when it comes to illnesses, we very rarely, if ever, know that it has to do with some direct relation to sinfulness. So people who do that are way out of line. Because leprosy, like many illnesses and these things, they're just part of living life in a fallen world. And we don't know God's design for our lives. But these lepers were exiled for health reasons, and they were truly ostracized from the community. They were considered forever unclean, never could be with people or be in the temple again until they died. And so leprosy here in our text, it could be the actual disease of leprosy that's actually still around. There are areas in East Asia, and I've, I've met missionaries that do work among lepers before. Um, it's a very painful disease that causes lesions and swollen areas of the skin, especially in the face, and affects the nerves, eventually leads to paralysis, uh, the wasting away of your muscles and deformity. It's very ugly. 
But the biblical term is really a general term for a lot of other skin diseases as well. And some, some think it has to do with psoriasis or lupus or ringworm or favus or some other diseases. Now, the only precedent, this is really important, because, you know, we read the gospel so often, we say, oh, yeah, Jesus goes here, he does a miracle. He goes here, he does another miracle. Jesus is a miracle worker, it's great. But we don't realize that prior to this healing of the lepers, when Jesus came, the last one that was done was Naaman the Syrian. Right? So the only other precedent of the miraculous healing of leprosy in the Bible, besides earlier in Luke chapter 5, is with Elisha. And so in Luke chapter 4, verse 27, Jesus preached when he opened his ministry. He said, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and some of them was, none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And if you look back in chapter 5 in Luke, um, the start of his ministry, a great way to get people talking about you is to heal a leper, and that's what he did. In Luke chapter 5, verse 2, it says, verse 12 and following, it came about that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he ordered him to tell no one, which doesn't usually work very well. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded for a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses, but he himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. Now, the law of Moses provided instructions for dealing with leprosy and how you could be healed. If that's the Lord's will, you can read about it in Luke 13 and 4, or Leviticus 13 and 14, if you'd like to. It's a very long, extensive passage, and you can get a little more understanding on your own. But basically, the restoration procedure is going to involve the priests, and it's going to involve the temple, and it's a whole week-long process. And at the end, the priest would pronounce a person clean. And then that person could re-enter society and worship in, in the temple. But anyway, these 10 men cry out to the Jesus in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They want to grab his attention. They want to be healed. They're urgent. They're insistent. They want a normal life. They know who he is. They've heard about him. And they speak even more faithfully than they realize when they call him master. Another translation is commander. And Jesus grants the healing. In verse 14, he simply says, go and show yourselves to the priests. So Jesus acts without the immediate visible results here. He simply tells them to go visit the priest. Jesus is testing them. Jesus requires the obedience of faith without getting to see the results right away. That's a lesson that probably all of us have learned at one point in our lives, and we need to keep relearning, and that is to just take Jesus at his word. I mean, it's going to take some measure of faith on the part of these men to just simply go without being healed and trust that somehow it's going to happen, happen on the way. And regardless of the belief levels of these 10 men, it happens. Jesus heals them while they're on their way. It reminds us of how Jesus has done other healings before, like the healing on the way of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4, 
where Jesus says to him, go your way, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. It's also like the healing on the way that takes place in Luke chapter 7 of the centurion's servant. In Luke 7, we read, Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Well, this is the kind of faith that these 10 lepers were supposed to exhibit, faith we're supposed to exhibit. You just take Jesus at his word and believe what he says. But we're going to see in this story, they didn't have faith of this kind of quality. But for now, let's just make an observation here. Jesus responds in this story to these people, these men who cry out for mercy to him. It's good to cry out to God for mercy in Jesus' name for healing or for whatever you need. I mean, many unbelievers do exactly this, and we should be encouraging them to do so. Sometimes it seems that Christians shy away from this because we have this strange notion that somehow unbelievers shouldn't be praying or that somehow God doesn't hear and act on their behalf. But Jesus taught very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount that God the Father causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, times of distress and crisis and weakness are wonderful opportunities to minister to people, and we should be displaying the same general compassion for people that Jesus displays here. And of course, we desire way more than just a rectification of their situation. We want people to come to faith in Jesus. And so we should follow up with them on the specifics of the gospel message as well. You know, it's, the, it's, it's this kind of reason why modeling Jesus' compassion, that Christians are the ones that historically are the ones that have led the way in the world in extending mercy to people, starting hospitals around the world. Um, Christians are responding in crisis situations both here and at home. Uh, Recently, I got to spend some time with some people doing work with refugees in Berlin when that took place a while ago. People in Asia, it's the Christians that are the ones that are out front showing compassion upon people, and I'm sure that's even true here in New Jersey. It's the Christians that lead in helping people in their suffering and, and and helping them see the truth in God. So as disciples, We want to set the example of giving glory to God through Jesus Christ and gratitude for our salvation and everything that he blesses us with. And we're going to see that now in the next part of the story. And our second observation is that those who respond properly to Jesus Christ receive salvation. So in verses 15 to 16, uh, we see that one man returns and he gives glory to God through Jesus Christ in verses 15 and 16. And then we see in verse 17 that through 19, that the greatest mercy of all is given to this one. He's given salvation. And so we continue to read then in verses 15 and 16. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. 
Now he was a Samaritan. The only one of the ten returns to the master, to Jesus, the Christ, bows down in reverence, thanksgiving given at his feet. The other nine, they were healed, but they just continue on to the priest and even afterward go and live their lives in a renewed state of normality that they never would have ever expected could have been theirs, but without giving proper thanks to God for what he just did for them. That just seems so strange. I mean, this is a huge matter. I mean, no, no one would have ever known a leper who was healed. It's just so strange that they wouldn't be more grateful. But you know, as you, we reflect upon the people we know and uh, look around the world and maybe even ourselves at certain points in our lives, we realize, you know, this isn't really that uncommon. I mean, this is how we are as sinful human beings. We see such behavior around us all, all the time today. People get healed, but they never go to church to praise God or learn about Him. And, and some will even do that even after making a vow. I mean, how many people you know make vows? It's like, God, if you will just do this for me, then I will do this. I'll go to church, you know, a common one. Well, you know, feel free to call people out on that, especially if you know them. And uh, they got what they wanted. All that they really wanted, sadly, escape from a danger, rescue from a catastrophe, help from a child, relief in a financial crisis, or whatever it might be. You see, the nine, they already got what they wanted from God and his Messiah, and it's tragic. Because there was so much more available to them from Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know whether the one who returns does so uh, af before or after seeing the priest. The text seems to prefer that, that it's before, but, it, but it's not certain. Some see it the other way. Anyway, this one is glorifying God with a loud voice and exuberance and proclaiming God's glory. It's as if he's singing Psalm 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. That my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. But most importantly for us to notice is that he worships God through Jesus. Jesus as the Christ. And Luke emphatically ends the sentence with a really strange statement. It just simply says, and he was a Samaritan. Why is that important? You know, these are the kinds of people, as you read the gospel accounts, that they're responding properly to Jesus. It's the unexpected one not the Jewish people that you would expect to be receiving their Messiah. And it's also one of Luke's sub-themes. If you read the whole Gospel of Luke, which I would encourage you to do, you see that one of his themes is the inclusion of the Gentiles. And that's why Luke is pointing this out to us. And he was a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan mission would actually start just a few months later after this, after Jesus died and rose again. And in Acts 8, we see this, this taking off where the apostles go to the Samaritans. In Acts 8, we read, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip, and they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was much rejoicing in that city. Notice above everything in this passage that a general giving of thanks to Jesus is not sufficient. What's required is a wholehearted glorifying of God. That's the teaching of Luke. 
and Jesus' actions in this passage. But then we see the greatest mercy is given to this one. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way, for your faith has saved you. So Jesus now asks here three rhetorical questions. Uh, And they're all intended to be teaching people that are watching. They're watching. They watch the Samaritans or the lepers go off. This one come back and praise Jesus. Luke records this in these these, uh, questions for those who are reading the scripture today, including us who are listening. So the first question is, were there not ten cleansed? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. He acts surprised, though, um, and he's drawing the listeners into the teaching that he has for them at the end. It's really amazing that the nine didn't return yet, isn't it? And then the next question is, is phrased in a certain way that doesn't really come out in the English, but this is what it says literally in the original language. It says, but the nine, where? That's the question. Where? It's a question that passes judgment as soon as it's asked. We know where they should be. And Jesus might be implying that, well, they went to the priest, but they didn't go to God. Because they took God's mercy for granted, and they didn't honor his Messiah who was among them. His third question is, was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? This is sarcasm against his own people, the Jewish people. The only one, you see, what he's saying, the only one with any true religious sensibility is this pagan, the Samaritan, but not his own people. And one of my favorite church pastors in church history is John Calvin, a 16th century pastor in Geneva, and he comments on the so-called faith of the many. And he writes, it's all too common of a disease that when we're urged by strong necessity and and when the Lord himself prompts within us a secret movement of his spirit, that we seek God. But then once we've obtained our wishes, ungrateful forgetfulness, forgetfulness swallows up that feeling of piety. That's what happens. God moves us to give him thanksgiving But then once we get what we want, we become ungrateful and forgetful, and once that that piety gets swallowed up. Well, Jesus then sends the Samaritan on his way with the typical words, go, your faith has saved you. And you'll notice I read it two different ways because it can be translated two different ways. Uh, It's the same word. Go, your faith has made you well, or you can translate it, go, your faith has saved you. In this case, both things happen. So we should leave this passage of Scripture understanding that All ten received the good gift of healing from their leprosy, but only the Samaritan received the best gift of all, salvation. Now, not everyone interprets the story this way. Some people believe that uh, healing and salvation happened for all ten of them, but only one of them was grateful and returned and gave thanks. Others will interpret it as Jesus healed all ten of them, but none of them actually receive salvation. And we just simply see the gratitude in this one leper. 
former leper. Yet, it's the most common interpretation that most scholars hold, and the one I think, of course, is most satisfying to the story, is that all ten received the good gift of healing from their leprosy, but it's only the Samaritan who actually received the best gift of all, the gift of salvation. Those who respond properly to God's mercy in their lives by going to Jesus Christ, putting their faith in him and thanking him directly, those are the ones who receive salvation as an even better gift than the mercy they received in their lives. This story teaches us that, like all of Luke's stories, that faith alone in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, truly does bring one eternal salvation. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation? It's only through the cross and resurrection that we find it. Those of us who have, we see ourselves like the Samaritan, and we do what he did. We constantly give God thanks and praise through Jesus Christ for his gratitude and gratitude for his salvation and all the blessings he brings to us. Now, there are three more applications that I want to give you um, from this, this passage of Scripture, one of my favorite passages. And the first is, is that Jesus still responds to calls for mercy. And he still expects the proper responses. You know, perhaps some of us this morning need to actually return and give God glory. And again, I want to encourage us all as disciples of Christ to pray with the unconverted and for them, for the acts of mercy that they need and desire in their lives. You know, God really is a generous God. And people need to know this. Because, you know, so many people in the world, they think they, think they have to do things to earn God's favor. But we know that he's a gracious God. And so they need to see that, this. And the ones who respond to this kind of ministry and perspective will surprise you. And it's inspiring. And it's really not uncommon to see people come to a true God-glorifying faith in Jesus Christ as a result of praying for them and through them in these circumstances and pointing them to Jesus. Also, challenge people on this and their response. I mean, especially if you know the people personally, and their situation was recent, where God answered their prayers. This is a, another way that you can begin a gospel conversation and turn it into a very spiritually profitable one. Um, and it obligates people to look back at their ingratitude and hopefully see their, their, their need for Jesus Christ. Now, don't let people abscond with God's mercies without an engaging gospel conversation. And uh, that's our role as disciples, and, and that's even what Luke is doing for us in this passage, is causing people to look at the mercies in their life and forcing them to reflect upon whether or not they're giving the right kind of thanks to God and is it going through his son, Jesus our Lord. So that's the first application, uh, is God still responds to merciful requests. So be his instrument and pray with people in need. Second, there is a legitimate parallel to be made between leprosy and sin. So although the connection between leprosy and sin is not explicit in Luke 17, it is in Luke 5. So if you go back, you read Luke 5 in context, you will clearly see that there's this connection is being made. In other words, that connection is that we are all lepers in a spiritual sense. 
If we could only see ourselves as we truly are, I mean, leprosy was a horrific, dreaded disease. It was a visible representation of the wretchedness of sin. Leprosy is actually a very good picture of the natural state of all human beings that we are totally infected with sin, like in every inch of our body, totally depraved. And we're unable to do anything about that corruption because it just keeps taking over our life. And naturally, we live under God's judgment. It's as if, like a leper, we're left alive physically, but we're spiritually dead inside. So when we think of leprosy, we shouldn't just think of this ancient disease, but we should also think about ourselves. It's quite an accurate portrayal of the natural sinfulness of humanity. And then we hope is that we, once we see ourselves for who we truly are and how willing Jesus is to cleanse, that we'll cry out for him and plead for his mercy to cleanse us from all of our sin, and he does. Jesus cleanses us from the leprosy of sin inside and out, restoring us to wholeness and restoring us to true community. That's the second application for continued meditation is leprosy and sin. The third is that perhaps... The most basic application of Luke chapter 17 is that we as disciples should be more like the Samaritan, thankful, full of praise. Alexander McLaren, another uh, favorite historical figure of mine, a Baptist minister in Britain, he was known as the Prince of Expositors, he commented on this passage in a sermon entitled, Where Are the Nine? He said, we increase the sweetness of our gifts by our thankfulness for them. We taste them twice when we ruminate on them in gratitude, both in regard to earthly and spiritual blessings, we are all sinners by unthankfulness, and we lose much thereby. So we get to taste the gift twice. That's the benefit of giving thanks. It's by meditation on the fact that God has not just answered our prayer and answered it in his great mercy in Jesus Christ, but then through thankfulness and prayer and praise to him, It's like we get to relive receiving his mercies. So may we constantly give God God glory through Jesus Christ and express our gratitude for him and for salvation and all his blessings in our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we do thank you that you are a merciful God, that you meet the needs of your people so richly, so mysteriously at times, And that it's all to exalt your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for us here at Calvary this morning that that you would cause us to enjoy your mercies this week even more by, by thinking about them and being able to taste them twice by giving you thanks and praise. And I pray that you would continue to make us as your people effective in our community, in our homes and in our families by being the ones that lead the way in conversations about your mercy and pointing people to the ultimate mercy, the best mercy of all in Jesus Christ, receiving his salvation from sin. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.